The doctrine of the Trinity is difficult for some people to understand, but this is what God has revealed in Scripture about His own being, so we should believe it. The doctrine of the Trinity states that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three eternal and co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same in essence but distinct in role, three persons, or three centers of consciousness, and one being. There is a diagram in this article on our website for you to visualize it. The different senses of oneness and threeness and threeness mean that the doctrine is not self-contradictory. This is similar in principle to saying that the Navy, Army, and Air Force are three distinct fighting entities, but are also one armed service. This is not to suggest that the three persons are parts of God. Indeed, each person has the fullness of the Godhead. See Colossians 2.9. A better analogy is that space contains three dimensions, yet the dimensions are not parts. The concept of space is meaningless without all three dimensions. Jesus Christ, Our Creator by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati Originally published mid-1996「All things necessary for our faith and life are either expressly set down in Scripture or may be deduced by good and necessary consequence from Scripture. Some cults, such as Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, and groups known as Oneness or Jesus-only Pentecostals, not to be confused with mainstream Pentecostals who do believe in the Trinity, are fond of pointing out that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But the doctrine can be logically proven from the following clear teachings of Scripture as follows. There is only one God, Deuteronomy 6.4 and Isaiah 44.8. Note that the Hebrew word for one is echad, which means composite unity. It is used in Genesis 2.24, where the husband and wife become one flesh. The word for absolute unity is yachid, which is never used of God in the Scripture. Also, the Father is called God in John 6.27 and Ephesians 4.6. And the Son is called God. Hebrews 1.8, he is also called I Am in John 8.58 in the following passage. And in Exodus 3.14, he has always existed, John 1.1-3 and 8.56-58, but took on full human nature in addition to his divine nature in the Incarnation. See John 1.14. In Philippians 2, 5-11. I'll give you a few moments to catch up with all those references. Next, the Holy Spirit is called God in Acts 5, 3-4, and is personal. See Acts 13, 2. Not some impersonal force as the Jehovah's Witness cult believes. And they are distinct. For example, at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, 16-7, all three were present and distinct. The Son is baptized, the Father speaks from heaven, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove flies down and lands on the Son. See the baptismal formula in Matthew 28-19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Note that the word name is singular, 
showing that all three persons are one being. The distinction in persons within the one God means that it is possible for Jesus to be the one mediator between God and men, 1 Timothy 2.5, and to be our advocate with the Father when we sin, 1 John 2.1. An advocate is a defense lawyer who pleads our case before a judge. This demonstrates a distinction between the persons. The distinction makes the substitutionary atonement possible. How else could Jesus be the one to whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all? Isaiah 53, 6. The one laying and the one on whom our sins are laid must be distinct. Jesus said that his Father sent him, John 14, 24, and that the Spirit was sent by both the Father, John 14, 26, and the Son, John 15, 7. This also points to distinct centers of consciousness within the one God. The fact that Jesus prayed to God the Father in John 17, 1, shows there was a distinction between Father and Son, since Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine, and humans should pray. It follows that it was proper for Jesus to pray in his humanity. Also, the deity of the Son, Jesus Christ, is further proved by the fact that he has attributes belonging uniquely to God. For example, he is the Creator, Colossians 1, 16-17. He has the ability to forgive sins, Luke 7, 47-50, and judge all people, John 5, 27. He sends forth the Holy Spirit, John 15, 26. He accepts worship, Hebrews 1, 6 and Matthew 14, 33. Jesus is called Lord, Romans 10.9, where the Greek word for Lord in the New Testament is a translation of the Old Testament Yahweh, which means God. Romans 10.13 cites Joel 2.32, which makes this clear. And Jesus is identified with the Alpha and Omega, and the equivalent the first and the last, Revelation 1.8, 17 and 18. See Revelation 1.8 and 17 and 18 and Isaiah 44, 6. In the Old Testament, Jesus is the child who is called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. In Hebrew, this literally means Father of Eternity, meaning author of eternity, Isaiah 9, 6, and the rest of the passage, and also see Isaiah 10, 21. He would be born in Bethlehem, yet his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. See Micah 5, 2. Now, despite the clear biblical evidence for the Trinity, some cults have objections based on misunderstandings of Scripture. For example, Jesus said, My Father is greater than I. See John 14, 28. But this refers to the Father's greater position in heaven, not superior nature. Philippians 2, 5-11 states that Jesus had equality by nature with God, but voluntarily took on the lower position of a servant. The same arguments apply to related passages about Jesus submitting to his Father's will. The word better would have been used to describe superiority in nature if this is what had been meant. Indeed, the word used to describe Jesus' superiority in his very nature to the angels, Hebrews 1.4. The distinction can be illustrated in the human realm by the role of the prime minister. He is greater than us in position but he is still a human being like us, so is not better in nature.
And Jesus is called the firstborn of every creature, Colossians 1.15. This does sound like he's not God. However, in Jewish imagery, firstborn means having the rights and special privileges belonging to the eldest child. It refers to preeminence in rank more than to priority in time. This can be shown in passages where the term firstborn is used of the preeminent son, who was not the eldest, for example, Psalm 89.27, where David is called firstborn, although he is actually the youngest son. Firstborn does not mean first created. The two words in Greek are not the same. In fact, the verses after Colossians 1.15 show that Christ himself is the creator of all things. So, our point is, Jesus is Son of God. From this, though, some of the cults try to show that Jesus is somehow less than God. But in Jewish imagery, the Son of often meant of the order of, or having the very nature of. For example, sons of the prophets meant of the order of prophets. See 1 Kings 20.35. Sons of the singers meant of the order of singers. In Nehemiah 12.28. Jesus as Jewish contemporaries understood that he was claiming to be God, which is why they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. John 19.7 Another issue the cults bring up is that Jesus is the only begotten Son in John 3.16. The Greek word translated only begotten means unique, one of a kind. Jesus is the unique Son of God because he is God by his very nature. Think through what we've already said. And believers in him become sons of God by adoption. Galatians 3, 26-4-7 This is shown in the human realm by Hebrews eleven seventeen, where Isaac is called Abraham's only begotten son. Abraham had other sons, but Isaac was the unique son of the Abrahamic covenant. See Genesis chapters 15-18 through 18 and 20, where he was born to his parents when they were old. See, I told you at the beginning, the doctrine of the Trinity is difficult for some people to understand, but this is what God has revealed in Scripture about His own being. So we should believe in the Trinity. Hey listener, people do want to understand where we all come from. So the scientific community, religions, and education systems have each rose to the challenge to give answer to why we're all here. One way or another, we are all limited by the number of facts and opinions that we can gather and assess. Evolutionists and creationists should both be aware of the facts though, no matter what, before we draw conclusions or debate origins and reality itself. If you want answers to evolution's most perplexing claims, you'll want to get a copy of the Creation Answers book. It provides biblical answers to over 60 important questions that everyone should be informed on. Like, what about carbon-14 dating? How did all the animals fit on the ark? Where are all the human fossils? And how did bad things come about? Not only does the book answer your questions, but equips you to effectively respond to those that resist the gospel due to the theory of evolution. The Creation Answers book is a must-have for anyone's library, so get your copy today at creation.com store.
I am Joseph Darnell. For everyone at Creation Ministries International from around the world, thanks for listening.